These are the oldest stories, online at oldeststories.net. We're going to start the year light with a pair of humorous stories, some ancient comedy, if you will, though in both cases with a bit of morose tone to it. The first is called The Dialogue of Pessimism, a master and servant discussing their daily plans, and the second is The Poor Man of Nippur, a tale of a corrupt mayor getting his comeuppance. And of course, I can't even start to discuss The Poor Man of Nippur without pointing out that some Cambridge students have made a film version of this story a couple years ago. They voiced it entirely in the ancient Akkadian language, making it the first film ever recorded in Babylonian. Despite being a student film, it's quite well put together, and my own rendition today is not going to be quite the same as that one. Hopefully I can add something to the story, but I have the link to the Poor Man movie in the episode description, and definitely recommend you check it out. It's free on YouTube, and it's only 22 minutes long. Anyway, comedy is sort of a hard topic to get a hold of in the ancient world. Comedy can be pretty subjective from person to person in the first place. Like me, I have basically zero interest in most of what Netflix is classifying as comedy films right now. Then, of course, some comedy can be hard to translate into other languages, especially like puns and word games, and or they can just be hard to understand in translation. On top of that, different cultures have different styles and flavors of comedy, and what other cultures might consider offensive or simply not funny being just the height of hilarity in another place. Now take all three of those and apply it to the ancient world, where we also have to deal with the fact that many of our sources are damaged to the point where it may be difficult to read them in the first place. And it often becomes difficult to identify whether any of the given 3,000-year-old tablets that we're looking at is meant as a joke or not. Now, perhaps the most famous example of this is what's been going around the internet lately as an example of the world's oldest joke. It's from one of the proverb collections, and so, of course, it has no context at all. And it reads... A dog entered a tavern and said, I can't see a thing. I'll open this one. And now we assume this is a joke because we nowadays have a whole genre of jokes that begin with a man walks into a bar, a whole subset of which are animal related. A horse walks into a bar. The bartender goes, why the long face? A weasel walks into a bar. The bartender says, what can I get you? Pop, goes the weasel. A sandwich walks into a bar, and the bartender says, sorry, we don't serve food here. But the truth is that we don't actually know if this structure of joke actually existed in the pre-modern era. Now, it could have been invented multiple times, but we don't have any X walks into a bar type sayings from the ancient world aside from this dog joke. On the other hand, these proverb collections do record other dog jokes, or at least other seemingly obscure statements about dogs, which we nowadays might find funny. My favorite reads, 
The dog understands, take it. It does not understand, put it down. An observation which remains true in our own era. And what could be the point of this proverb if not just to be amusing and cute? Another proverb reads, The dog licks its shriveled genitals with its tongue, which could also be a certain kind of humor, but could also be, you know, a metaphor for various potential moral lessons. Maybe don't let a dog lick you or your stuff, because that's just filthy. You don't know where its mouth has been, or more like you do know where its mouth has been. Maybe if you talk about sex stuff too much, you're like a filthy dog keeping your tongue on your genitals all the time. Maybe it's like an anti-masturbation thing. Self-pleasure is an act reserved for one of the most despised of animals. And my point is not to argue that any of these are not jokes, or indeed that any of them are jokes. Indeed, they could have been both humorous and had deeper meanings, or these could all have been little more than idle thoughts recorded by trainee scribes. My own school notebooks, I found some of them the other day, and they've got some perplexing nonsense written in them, things which made perfect sense in the moment, but which would, of course, baffle future archaeologists looking through my middle school binder for 20th century philosophy or whatever they think they're going to find there. My point is that we often simply don't know. I mean, we're pretty sure, about as sure as we can be, that ancient people did have jokes and humor of multiple types, because they were human. But just as modern com comedy can often be mined for social commentary, so too can ancient comedy. And when it's hard nowadays to find the ancient laughter, we can have trouble distinguishing between philosophy and comedy. Indeed, even nowadays, many of our most popular comedians, like Norm MacDonald and George Carlin and Mitch Hedberg and so on, these sometimes get praised as philosophers in their own right, though whether they qualify as philosophers or not is, at best, debatable. With longer works, though, we can be on a bit more solid ground. The dialogue of pessimism may not be quite a laugh a minute, but the structure of an extended joke is definitely in there, in that it sets up multiple scenes in similar ways and subverts the scene in the same way every time until a final subversion in the last scene undermines the entire dynamic. Meanwhile, the poor man of Nippur can be filmed having some gags in it, but it's closer to the ancient Greek idea of comedy. Not so much a set of jokes, but a generally happy narrative adventure sort of thing. Anyway, as the ancient Sumerian proverb reads, he broke it into pieces and sated his hunger. He licked his hands and belched. And so we might as well lick our hands and get started. We begin with the dialogue of pessimism, which was, of course, not the original name. We have no idea what this was originally called, but it has the feel of an Abbott and Costello routine or some other partner comedy sketch. We have two characters, the master and the servant, and the setup is the master repeatedly calls for the servant to do various things, 
and the servant is a vacuous sycophant flapping in the wind. So, for example, first, the master calls to the servant, creating a fixed formula for the first few lines. Slave, listen to me. Here I am, master, here I am. Then the master requests that the slave gets the chariot and drive them to the palace. The slave sycophantically agrees that driving is a good idea. On the chariot, everyone will see his wealth, and the prince will give him honor and attention. In the next line, though, the master changes his mind. It isn't clear from the text why the master changes his mind. and could be easily performed in a number of different ways. It could be that the master, on hearing the sycophantic and somewhat vile servant agreeing with him, just no longer thinks it's a good idea. Just because for all that the slave wants to agree with the master, the master has no desire to agree with the slave. Or it could be that the master is indecisive, perhaps from being bored with life and he's suffering from the world's oldest recorded case of ennui. Or it could be that the master knows that his slave is a hypocritical sycophant and is attempting to expose it. Because as soon as the master changes his mind, the slave ignores his prior urgings and reverses course completely, fully agreeing with the master, saying that if they drive to the palace, then probably the prince will lay some unpleasant duty on the master. Now, there is a measure of philosophy here. I face the same question sometimes. Do I want to put myself forward at work or socially or whatever and potentially get a measure of recognition? Or do I want to just keep my head down and avoid any possible extra assignments? But I don't get the sense that this is meant to be deeply pondered, just recognize it's a universally familiar situation and to chuckle at the slave's hypocrisy. Anyway, the matter continues in much the same vein. Servant, hear me. Yes, master, yes. Let's wash hands. I want to eat. Ah, yes, the more you eat, the more you are expanded which is an odd sort of compliment, but in those days, fat was more of an accomplishment. But also, the man who eats well is his own god, which has the sound of a proverb, but it's not one we understand fully. But also, the slave says that the god Shamash is with those whose hands are washed, which reminds us that ancient people did, in fact, recognize the value of cleanliness, even though they couldn't always live into it as much as they might have liked to. But then, of course, the master is convinced by these arguments not to eat after all, to which the servant replies that, Oh, yes, it's best to eat only when hungry. Not only is this more in accord with the natural order of things, it also makes the food taste better. And then the master hems and haws, and eventually decides he wants to go through to a ride through the country. This is, of course, a fantastic idea, expressed in flowery parables to say that the man who moves around has all his needs met. But the master doesn't really feel like going around, which turns out to be a good idea, as the slave tells us that wanderers are all madmen and wretched vagrants. And so the master thinks that maybe his restlessness will be solved if he forms a family and fathers a son. 
The tablet's actually damaged at this point. We don't know what the slave says in support of a family life, but it must not have been very convincing as the master changes his mind and the slave supports even this, saying that family is like a binding noose that restricts a man and only fools have families. And so the master decides to do something dishonest. Not any particular dishonest act. It has the sound of sort of a sheltered child who wants to do some drugs. Even in this, the slave is encouraging, letting us know that unless a man does evil deeds, he has no way of acquiring food or clothing. But when the master decides against it, the slave agrees with this as well, reminding us that the man who does something dishonest risks being caught and jailed, then blinded, then skinned alive, then executed. Which is interesting, because we don't hear about blinding and flaying in most ancient law codes, suggesting that it may have been widely known that the law was more brutal in practice than in theory. An alternate possibility is that since we're now in the late period, the Iron Age, the increasing brutality that we're going to see and we've started to see in Assyrian military practice is just a symptom, perhaps, of a wider societal move towards more brutal action in general. I don't know that enough data exists to be sure one way or another, but little mentions like this is how we form our pictures of the ancient world when aggregated and each little bit really considered. Our indecisive master then decides that he can best find fulfillment in love and women. The slave agrees that a man in love is a man without sorrow or worry, which admittedly hasn't been my experience since falling in love, but it sounds good enough for a story. But the master soon changes his mind and the slave concurs, letting us know that a woman is a trap for men to fall into, or a throat-slashing dagger. This also hasn't been my experience of love, but it sounds good for a story. So the master decides to make a sacrifice to the gods, and the slave agrees that sacrificing to the gods will bring great success in business. But then the master doesn't feel like it anymore, and the slave agrees that the gods are just too demanding. If you give to one, it'll just expect more and more like a hungry puppy. Now, is this a faithful perspective or a skeptical one? Is this an impiety? Or is this how the divine was actually experienced in the ancient transactional polytheist religions? I mean, it certainly wasn't a polite way to say it, but it does seem to be a perspective which fits within ancient theology to a certain extent. The modern equivalent might be Christians who feel that it's okay to sin because Jesus will forgive them later. It's not really the right thing to do or say, but it is kind of a reasonable theological conclusion for someone with a really negative attitude. Anyway, the master then wonders if he should make some loans this being an, apparently a fairly common business for the wealthy, then as now. The slave agrees, announcing that interest on loans is basically free money. But then he decides against it, and the slave again agrees, stating that 
It's very easy to make loans, but it's extremely painful to get people to pay them back. Debtors are, apparently, according to the slave, abusive, swindling cheats, every last one of them. The penultimate exchange is, I think, the most significant and revealing of the ancient worldview. Not only do we see the balance of patriotism and nihilism reflected in the exchange, but we also get a window into the actual scale of history that's already passed. We think of these people as the world's first civilizations, but at this point in the story, we've had 2,000 years of recorded history and three or 4,000 years of urban civilization, both literate and pre-literate, and maybe six to 8,000 years of settled agriculture in this region, all of which has left its mark both physically and culturally. I'm just going to read it to you. Slave, hear me. Yes, master, yes. I will do a good deed for my country. So do it, master, do it. The man who does a good deed for his country, that good deed fills Marduk's basket. No, slave. I will certainly not do a good deed for my country. Do not do it, master. Do not do it. Go up on the ancient ruin heaps and walk around. Look at the skulls of the lowly and great. Which was the doer of evil, and which was the doer of good deeds? After this, we get to what is essentially the punchline of the joke. In compositions like this, there's always an open question as to whether the copy we have was originally composed in writing or orally. For a thing like this, with a very clear pattern for each exchange, there's a definite orality to it, though whether that's because it was, in fact, oral, or if it was simply emulating the patterns found in a generally oral culture of the time, that's unclear. If it was a folk comedy, we can expect that there would have been many variant verses. Now, we've almost completely lost this in modern culture, but if you do some research on early modern poems and songs and things like that, like What Do You Do With a Drunken Sailor? or The Tales of Br'er Rabbit, you find that frequently there's no one canonical version. People take the verses they've heard, and they invent and transmit their own verses as well, dropping the ones that they don't like, adding their own in. But typically, what we see as well-preserved is the structure of the thing. And anything that breaks that structure in the main whole of the structure does get well-preserved. So what I mean here is that in a song, the chorus is almost certainly very well-preserved. But in this, this is the final exchange. It changes the structure in a very specific kind of way. Hearing this now, we've gone through nine exchanges following what's preserved on the clay tablets we have, but in ancient Mesopotamia, there could have been a different number and a different set of exchanges, each with different little jokes and focuses. But you assume that the final one is always the same because... The master is now completely at a loss 
for what to do with himself. So he asks his slave, What then is good? And the slave answers, We should both kill ourselves. That's what's good. For who is so tall as to reach the heavens, and who is as broad as the earth? Now that last line you may remember from the Epic of Gilgamesh, and it also appears in some proverb collections. With the context of both Gilgamesh and this suicide proposition, it seems to be a comment on the futility of life, though it's hard to understand exactly what this idiom means. But we get the sense here that the slave is expressing the idea that life is futile. But of course, many bored people have contemplated suicide over the millennia, only to find themselves defending their life when actually under attack, and the slave's idea repulses the master. The master says, No, slave, I will kill you, and let you see the underworld first. To which the slave responds with the punchline, Then my master will certainly not outlive me even three days. Now, to be fair, the master does seem pretty helpless through all this, but the slave seems little better himself. The curtain falls upon the duo, and the lights fade out, exit stage left. Now, like I said at first, comedy doesn't always translate well, and of course, me interrupting it con constantly to add commentary certainly does nothing to the comedic value. And when you add all the philosophy into the mix, even if that philosophy was originally intended by the authors, it really doesn't clarify anything. Still, there's a wisdom in here, of a sort, and uh, definitely a window into the life of ancient people. Our next story for today is the tale of the poor man of Nippur. And again, check the description of today's episode for a link to the movie version. It's like 20 minutes long, and it's quite entertaining. The poor man in question is Gimel Ninurta. His name means Ninurta's favor, but that doesn't seem super relevant to the story. It was likely a fairly generic name. Likewise, it doesn't seem relevant that he's in Nippur specifically, except to say that he's in one of the major towns of the region. Though we usually date this work to some time after 1000 BCE, which is why I haven't covered it until now, we don't actually know when exactly it was originally composed. It's a sufficiently timeless tale that it could have been much older. We don't really know. Anyway, what we do know is that Gimel Ninurta, as he starts his story, is in a bad way. He's a young man in a big town, and he owns nothing at all. He has no silver, no gold, no grain, no bread, no beer, and no meat. He's even unfortunate in appearance, though whether that means he was ugly or if he just looked poor isn't clear. There's even a pun in here describing his hunger in a way that could also suggest that he's ill-tempered or in a poor mood. We don't know why he's in such a state, but it seems that he's been this way for a while and is now at the breaking point of hunger. Fortunately, all is not completely lost for Gimel Ninurta. He still has the clothes on his back. 
No extra clothes, but the value of fabric in the ancient world was pretty high. Simply being non-naked meant that he possessed an asset. And so, he begins the story by deciding to go to the market and sell his shirt in exchange for a three-year-old goat. It seems that the prices for a shirt and a goat were roughly equivalent. So now he's standing in the middle of Nippur. He's naked, and he has a goat. Now this could well be the start of one of those Zelda puzzles, where he exchanged clothes for goat, then goats for something else, and after many links, ends up with the key to the boss level or something. But this tale is a bit more grounded than that. Gimelnerta just has a goat, and now he's hungry. Now, you'd think that he would just slaughter the goat and cook it, and that's the first place his mind goes as well, but pretty quickly he realizes that he simply can't cook this goat. He's so poor that he has no beer, and the entire community would be upset if he cooked a goat and had no beer to go along with it. Now, this isn't just a comical concern. Slaughtering an animal was a common enough occurrence in the ancient world, but it was still a pretty significant economic act. If nothing else, the cost of the animal was significant, and in the era before refrigeration, particularly in warm Mesopotamia, the entire thing would need to get eaten in pretty short order. The idea that Gimelnerta would be eating this goat by himself probably never even crossed his mind. He would be essentially hosting a feast for his neighbors and relatives, and if he couldn't also provide beer, it would be a disaster. And to be clear, this is not part of the comedy, or at least we don't think it's meant as such. Anthropologists study cultures around the world which are termed feasting economies, with extremely lavish and strict rules about who, how, and when feasts are hosted, with extremely heavy burdens placed on the hosts in exchange for significant social rewards. Now, Mesopotamia was definitely not a full-on feasting economy like you'll find in some of the modern Pacific islands, but the same sort of pressures around the need to eat a large amount of food quickly, with many people helping, leads to at least some of the same pressures and rewards for the hosts. To eat a goat outside of a communal context, all alone with no ritual, no festival, no sacrificial practices, I mean, that could maybe be acceptable out in the countryside or in desperate times. But even though Gimelnerta is desperate, he is in the middle of one of the most civilized cities of his entire civilization. To put it another way, a modern hunter might catch and clean and cook a bird in the middle of the woods, but if he caught, cleaned, and cooked a pigeon in the middle of New York City, well, that might attract some negative attention. But then Gimelnerta has an idea. He should bring the goat to the mayor's house. The mayor, of course, pretty regularly holds feasts and will have everything required to host yet another feast. Gimelnerta will offer the goat to the mayor in exchange for a seat at the feast. That way, he can eat and also follow all pro proper social protocols. So, 
Gimel Nerta goes up to the gatekeeper, and he might be completely naked, or we could assume that he has a certain amount of underwear still protecting his modesty. Either way, he's got his goat with him, and he tells Tikulti Elil, the gatekeeper, that he's here to see the city mayor. The gatekeeper relays this message, and while we don't have the mayor's reply because the tablet's damaged, we can tell that the mayor is irritated, first, that he's being interrupted, and second, that he's being interrupted by a naked and poor person. That's just terrible. But Gimel Ninurta does get his audience, and opens quite properly with a generous blessing of the gods on the mayor's house and family. The mayor, however, is skeptical. He wants to know why Gimel Ninurta is bringing him a bribe. But Gimel Ninurta insists no bribe is being offered. Nothing untoward is occurring at all. Rather, our hero explains that he's just really hard up, and he's hoping to contribute this goat to the mayor's next feast in hopes that he can eat at the feast. It's pretty great. He's not even begging for food. He's just begging for a fair deal. Unfortunately, the next section is damaged in the text, but we can tell that it doesn't go well for the poor man of Nippur at all. When we can next read anything, the mayor is ordering that Gimel Nerta be thrown out of the house and given nothing but bone, sinew, and beer two-thirds diluted. Not even just beer. You get like a third of a beer. And now it seems that he's out a goat and he's naked. He does get this tiny amount of food, but he's terribly offended by the injustice done to him. And now the story really begins. On his way out the door, he informs the gatekeeper that he would definitely inflict vengeance three times upon the mayor over this offense. The gatekeeper, dutiful as ever, reports this to the mayor, but the mayor laughs the entire day at the thought of a poor person ever getting the better of him. And we should laugh with him, since we all know that there is no way a poor person could ever end up on top of a situation like this, nor are poor people ever capable of enacting a clever revenge. Gimelnerta walks away determined to bring his case to the king. Now, the king lives in another city. Nippur would have been understood as a town that had never been the center of an empire. But as he says this, the scribe writes a big old line in the clay, just a big mark across the whole thing to designate the end of one scene. And when the next scene begins, Gimelnerta is standing in the presence of the king. In one sense, this makes sense. The scene is just switching very cleanly. But it's not clear if Gimel Ninurta is still naked. It could be that he was given clothing during the missing part of the mayor's feast, or he could have borrowed rich clothing from somewhere unstated. It seems unlikely that Gimel Ninurta would be in the king's presence while naked as a citizen petitioner. Anyway, our hero is before the king, making the appropriate flatteries, and he then proposes to the king that he should be allowed to borrow one of the king's fine chariots for one day, and in exchange, he will pay the king one mina of red gold. The king says yes to this proposal, 
The narrator even points out that the king doesn't ask why Gimil Ninurta needs the chariot, or what he's going to do with it. Just the outsized payment for a day of rental appears to be enough to convince him. Gimil Ninurta gets set up on the chariot, and he's given an official sash, and he's made to look like an officer of the king, all for the promise of a pretty significant amount of gold. This, to be clear, is corruption. If the mayor is corrupt, it makes sense that the king is as well. So our hero is using corruption to fight corruption. Gimilinerta rides the chariot back to Nippur, and along the way he catches two birds and sticks them in a box, then seals the box with a royal seal. Don't worry, nothing bad is going to happen to the birds. Gimilinerta then arrives at the mayor's door and informs the doorman that he's on a mission from the king and needs to be allowed into the mayor's house. The mayor, thinking that Gimilinerta is an important man, is there to receive him and invites him to a feast. During the feast, Gimilinerta explains to the mayor that he's carrying a box of gold, which is intended as an offering for the temple of Enlil the next morning. The weight of the box proves that there are contents within, though the mayor knows better than to break the seal of the king to inspect and see what's actually in the box. The mayor is suitably impressed and allows Gimilinerta to stay the night at the mayor's house. During the night, however, Gimilinerta wakes up, and he opens the box, and he allows the captured birds to fly away. Then he goes back to sleep. The mayor wakes up in the morning and immediately goes to check the box, only to discover that it's been opened in the night and is now empty. The mayor cries out, and Gimilinerta makes a big show of grief, ripping his clothes and wailing. This, this is not only theft, it's also rebellion against the king and blasphemy against the gods. And it all happened under the mayor's roof. Using the heat of the moment, Gimilinerta reduces the mayor to begging, fearful of the potential consequences. Gimilinerta beats the mayor severely. The mayor begs to know what he can offer as restitution, and Gimilinerta demands two mina of red gold. The mayor gives him this, and also new clothes to replace the ripped clothes, and Gimilinerta leaves on the chariot. But as our hero exits the gate, he tells the gatekeeper that he is Gimilinerta and the first of the three promised vengeances has been exacted, before dashing away on the chariot too fast for anyone to catch him. Gimilinerta is able to return the chariot and repay the king the promised one Mina, with another Mina left over for himself. But our hero is not yet finished with the mayor. Knowing that the mayor has now been severely beaten, because he did the beating, he goes to the barber and has all the hair on the left side of his head shaven off, and he does some other things that we can't quite read to give himself the appearance of a physician. He shows up at the gate and tells the gatekeeper that he's a physician from the town of Issen. The gatekeeper lets him in, but the mayor wants proof that this mysterious fellow truly is a reputable doctor. 
Now, the thing is, in the ancient world, divination and medicine were essentially different facets of the same science. And so, Dr. Gimmel informs the mayor that he came all the way to Nippur because his divinations had revealed to him that the mayor had been injured and needed treatment. What's more, his divinations had been so specific as to allow him to detail the nature and location of the wounds even without having seen them. At this revelation, the mayor is astounded. Only Gimilinurta, the mayor, and the gods themselves could have seen where the mayor was injured, and so this must be a true divination sent from heaven on his behalf. Now that the mayor vouched for this mysterious doctor, Dr. Gimmel told everyone that they needed to leave, and the mayor needed to be brought into a room that was completely dark for treatment. The fact that the treatment requires darkness is another pun, which could also mean that compensation would be extracted in the darkness, but the intended meaning seems to give the mayor a miss even if it would be obvious to the audience, that audience being you. You can see how Gimelinerta is saying, oh yes, I'm going to extract my compensation from you. But the mayor assumes, oh yes, we're going to have treatment in the darkness. The pun is lost in English. I don't know. Gimelinerta, he puts on a good show of being a doctor. He throws a bowl of random herbs into a low fire, and then he ties the mayor's hands, feet, and head to stakes. Which kind of sounds absurd, but remember that even though we usually nowadays assume that we will understand the purpose and methods of modern medicine, in the ancient world, medicine was very much mysterious to all but the initiated. And it was typically humiliating and painful as well tolerated only because it could sometimes bring about relief at the end of the process. The mayor is trusting the science here, as the young folks say. And then, of course, Gimelinerta proceeds to beat the tar out of the mayor, leaving him tied up in the room. Then he walks out the gate, whispers to the gatekeeper, The second vengeance has been enacted, before running away into the city. There remains now a third and final vengeance to be exacted upon the mayor, and this one is far simpler than the first two. Gimelinerta sits in the crowded places of Nippur, looking for an athletic and willing young man. Spawning a likely candidate, he offers the boy a mina of red gold if the boy will run up to the gate of the mayor's house shouting that he is the poor man with the goat. The boy doesn't seem to really know what he's getting into, or perhaps he just likes mischief. But either way, a mina of gold is too fantastical of a fortune to pass up, so he just goes along with it. The boy gets himself a lot of attention, he makes a lot of noise, even gets a little crowd around him, and then as he passes by the mayor's house, they hear his claim and the whole palace lights up like a beehive hit with a stick. The boy runs off, but the mayor insists that everyone in the household chase after him, and the mayor himself runs after them. But of course, the mayor is badly bruised, 
and he soon falls behind the rest of the crowd, and Gimel Ninurta has hidden himself under a bridge along the route he knew that they would all take. He pops out, he overwhelms the mayor, he beats him a third time. Gimel Ninurta's final words are a fulfillment of his promise. Having been offended once, he would offend three times. Then Gimel Ninurta walks off into the open country. The mayor, meanwhile, is either left to crawl back into the city, or he's actually dead and has to be carried into the city. The original text apparently, and perhaps deliberately, contains a pun that could hold either meaning. Thus ends The Poor Man of Nippur, and with it today's episode. Though we're back in Mesopotamia, I have decided that we'll be getting deep into a few cultural topics appropriate for the Mesopotamian Iron Age before picking back up on the threads of history. And so join us next time as we look at two fellows who sometimes get confused in popular cultural treatments of ancient Mesopotamia, the personal god Lamassu and the demon Lamashtu, as well as a whole host of other B-list deities and stuff about how magic worked and the gods were involved in ancient Mesopotamia. Thank you for listening.